is the FS podcast hosted by Exadel. Exadel is the leading provider of digital transformation, managed services and staff augmentation for the financial markets. Today, we're joined by Matt Jackson. Matt is the relationship manager of VP at Free Market and has joined us to shed light on the evolution of cross-border payments. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really nice to be here. So what was the first ever cross-border payment? <clears throat> I think when you think about cross-border payments, you're tending now to think of something digital, but really this started um, whenever goods were being moved across borders, whenever people were starting to be nomadic. So you can't really put a date on, on when it was, but it was a long time ago. Um, and the types of things that people would have been moving might have been spices or grains or uh, things like that to start with. And it probably wouldn't have been from America to, to China. Those those borders probably didn't cross oceans at that point, but um, it might have been to your neighbouring countries. How did that involve into what we have today? So the idea of um, goods moving across those borders and gold bullion being the um, exchange mechanism or the, or the way that was paid for remained really unchanged for for many thousands of years. It wasn't until the 13th century um, and driven by Italian Lombards, uh, I'm reliably informed, that um, that method of payment of gold bullion changed to bills of exchange. So these merchants, be them Flemish, Italian, English or, or whatever, they would sell their goods and be given a bill of exchange, which they would take to the local bank and be paid uh, in, in their cash. Now, that still had the issues that um, that would be in the local currency. So if you were a Flemish wool merchant selling uh, into London, you would be paid in sterling. Um, and obviously you needed to then take that sterling back or, or find a way to exchange it for goods you needed um, or, or take it back and find a way to exchange that into your home currency. And really, this is how the correspondent banking network developed so banks understood that this was a, a problem for their merchants so they set up the local relationships and this is where the whole concept of nostro vostro accounts came from that bank a in belgium would have a relationship with bank uh, b in london there would be trade going to and fro and instead of having to take your bill of exchange to a bank not in your country you would take it back to your own bank be given your local currency and those banks would communicate by post, believe it or not. Um, we've got these bills of exchange. Please debit our account this amount and, and credit our account this amount. And eventually that all gets settled in between those banks. And that is really the first idea of how correspondent bank networks developed. And that happened from the 13th century all the way up until um, just pre-World War One, really. If you think of the Industrial Revolution and what that meant for the proliferation of goods and those goods being sold across borders, it was clear that that um, unorganized network was prone to error, delay. Um, and so as we come out of the First World War um, in early 1930s, I think it was actually uh, a German bank developed um sorry, it was the German Postal Service developed these telex machines, which meant that communications could be sent electronically and uh, cables were laid under the sea for the first time to do that. So banks could communicate 
not in a very sophisticated way, but instead of having to post bills of exchange, they could communicate via this undersea cable network using these telex printers. And that, that first came about in uh, the 1930s and really was the method of communication all the way up until the 1970s when the SWIFT network was established. Jumping to today, um, how will ISO 20022 impact cross-border payments and what can financial institutions and fintechs do to prepare for that change? So this is a, a quite a big sea change in the way those swift communication messages are formatted and the amount of data and information that is being sent within them. So what they're aiming to do is give you access to better and more data, which will allow you to understand your payments better. Um, it is built on the latest technology, so it should future-proof, um, certainly, well, with the with the way technology moves, maybe only for a few years, but the idea is that that, that lasts a long time. Um, it allows much more automation possibilities as well by unifying that standard um, of communication even further um, and mandating specific protocols. It should allow people, wherever they sit in the chain, um, to automate those processes a lot better. And the idea is that it's adopted universally. Now, all that does is try and solve the issues that exist within cross-border payments around access, transparency, cost, security, and speed. What companies need to do to engage in that is, first of all, recognize that the change is coming. Actually, it's been pushed back um, a few times now because there wasn't the readiness that people would hope for. I think in reality, that was understood and would have been planned for, um, but they need to actively engage in that. And if you're a merchant, you need to be speaking to your providers, whoever they are, and saying, what changes will I need to make to the way I communicate with you to accommodate this ISO 2022? And everyone down the chain needs to be actively engaging in those conversations and understanding what they need to do to be ready for this, because that element of change is inevitable. What are the biggest pain points today for B2B companies making cross-border payments? I think we, we touched on some of them previously, but for a company specifically, sometimes just getting access to make B2B payments easily is difficult, especially if you're in um, a jurisdiction that might be perceived to be high risk or you work in a vertical that is perceived to be high risk. The ability for those companies to get um, fast, efficient uh, access to those services is is sometimes difficult. Um, cost is always um, a barrier that gets spoken about. It, to be honest, it could cost uh, fractions of a penny and people would be still saying it's too expensive. But um, I think it is widely recognised that um, the cost of a cross-border transaction has been for a long time and continues to be too expensive. There's There's an element of that transparency and security. So when you send a payment, how quickly can it get there and where is that payment in the correspondent banking network at any point, depending on uh, where you are in that chain, who you're working with and those partners capabilities, you may or may not be able to access that information very quickly. And, you know, a typical SWIFT payment is tens, if not hundreds of thousands of um, pounds or, or local currency. You want to know where that amount of money is. That's a significant amount of money. And sometimes those delays onto the next problem, um, those delays can be numbers of days where banks are not reconciling payments or someone in the chain has um, just delayed it for a compliance reason. Uh, you need to understand exactly where that payment is and what you can do to influence getting that payment through the system. 
Transparency is a really interesting one. I hadn't thought because as like a sort of small business or an individual, like you kind of just expect to not have any transparency. But if you're sending, you know, a hundred thousand pounds, um, and you want to know where it is, right? And it's just not there yet, and you yeah. want to know exactly where it actually is. Yeah, we talk about this a lot um, at Free Market at the moment that consumers actually better than any point in time have access to really good financial services. You might not like some of the charges your bank levy on you, but most bank apps now are actually really, really good and allow you to do things really easily and smoothly. As a consumer, uh, you know, I might be sending my friend 50 pounds for dinner that we had the other night. That happens instantly and I've got his details saved and it's three or four buttons that I've clicked to send that payment and it lands, my friend's happy, that isn't the case in business, but I work in business. So my expectations are coming from my experience as a consumer and they bleed over into your expectations as a business. Now, there are loads of good reasons as to why um, that experience isn't at parity yet, but it certainly gives the industry a direction of travel of where we want to get through and, and speed um, and transparency is always at the, at the, at the pinnacle of that. What about for banks and financial institutions? Um, do they have any payment struggles and is there anything that can be done to resolve them? I think they share all of the, the payment struggles that we spoke about earlier, but it's always important to remember that most of the compliance burden falls on their head. Um, and in order for them to comply with the plethora of um, sanctions and responsibilities they have um, to do KYC and KYB and understand exactly who's sending money to whom and and um, the values and, and the source of funds on that. That's that's a big problem for them. And I think the industry is has been slow to move to digital processes uh, within that. There's a famous fintech consulting company, company that always talks about digital banking only being 1% complete. Um, and so there's a legacy of manual processes that are to be digitized um, that I think are a particular pain point for banks and financial institutions. Another element of that is one transaction may pass through many financial institutions and the same checks, albeit in different ways, are being done by each financial institution to ensure that they comply with um, all of the regulations that they need to. That is slow. It is friction in, in the process. And I think it's a particular pain point that there are certain things around blockchain technology and um, sovereign digital identities that they're looking to, to solve. It's interesting you mentioned blockchain. Um, On to a bit of a hot topic, how can international settlement cycles be shortened? Yeah, I mean, blockchain may be a mechanism to, to do that. Um, it's one of one of many. Um, I think that the the ways that we shorten those settlement cycles um, are things like standardizing the processes. So something that maybe ISO twenty twenty two will will seek to solve is if you can automate and standardize processes as much as possible, settlement cycles sh should shrink. As part of that, and again, something that um, ISO twenty twenty two is looking to solve is that improved communication. Um, so if you standardize um, the way people communicate uh, with each other, the, the messages that are mandatory and you can automate the way that those messages are sent, there's an opportunity to 
um, really drastically improve the settlement cycles. If you look at inter-country settlements, um, that real-time processing network that exists uh, across the world, um, I don't think there's been much standardization there. There are examples certainly in Asia where countries have been able to successfully link their own real-time payments network, but I don't think anybody's really solved that global um, problem of how you're linking real-time payments. And do you develop a standard for that? Um, will, given the geopolitical situation across the world, will that standard ever be adopted by all of the different countries because of people's ideas of sovereignty and things like that? I touched on streamline, streamlining compliance processes and maybe if there's a transaction um, that it doesn't have to be KYC'd at every single financial institution it goes to, but if there was a technology or a use case that allowed um, a company to authorise that transaction and those authorization credentials follow its, itself along the chain, I think there's the real opportunity there. Uh, and does that mean that we need to adopt some sort of digital ID? perhaps um but i think there's there's all sorts of barriers to that as well what if any then um impact do you think blockchain will have on cross-border payments yeah loads um i think there are loads i think the the aims that they will try and do is to solve all those pain points that we spoke about earlier so look to speed up the settlement look to lower the cost look to increase the transparency and look to improve the security and if you consider the design of blockchain much less the application of cryptocurrencies but the design of blockchain where it's the distributed ledger technology where changes are irreversible and can only be made by agreement from all parties you think there's a really good use case for cross-border payments within that um, there are companies now that do that leveraging stablecoin technology and they have gained really significant traction um, over the past year. And I think there was a stat I read that um, there are over 10,000 smart contracts um, agreed every year on a, on a particular, sorry, every month on a particular blockchain. And of those 10,000 smart contracts, something like 50% of them are related to solving cross-border um, technology payments what about um cbdc do you see them catching on and if so how do you think they'll impact the payments industry and then maybe um just for anyone who might be listening who might not know what they are could you also tell us a little bit about them yeah and i think um <clears throat> they're, they're fascinating in the a central bank digital currency is effectively a digital version of money you have now that exists if you have uh any e-wallet let's let's say PayPal, I'm in, I'm in uh, the UK, PayPal is probably the dominant e-wallet there. If I load a balance into my PayPal wallet, that is effectively a digital currency. The difference between that and a CBDC is that much like the pound uh, in the UK is controlled by the central bank, they're looking to control that um, central bank digital currency, which is where you get the CBDC from. Again, the aims of them are to be secure, efficient, um, and transparent. <clears throat> I think if if you took a more pessimistic view, it's a way to make sure that the government are able to control their their currency and make sure that they are being able to collect the tax that they should in in all ways, which I don't think has always been the case for them, and and is perhaps um, a reaction to the proliferation of uh, cryptocurrencies and and stablecoins. 
<clears throat> how they will impact cross-border trade and, and cross-border payments, I think, again, looking for them to be faster. You're looking for them to um, increase financial inclusion. So um, perhaps in, in countries where the use of cash um, has been dominant, and that has limited people's access to services online, particularly in the third world, by having a central bank digital currency where mobile um, adoption might be really high, you, you can really drive that financial inclusion. Um, again, you're looking to improve the transparency, decrease the cost. Um, and there's elements there around um, competition that I think uh, a CBDC can address, particularly with cross-border payments. I think some of the same issues that exist now will exist um, in a CBDC world. So really great stats around just how many um, countries are looking to uh, implement a CBDC and are at various stages of that. So I think 95% of global GDP through 114 countries are exploring a CBDC. And that has improved since May 2020. So in just two years, there are only 35 countries considering implementing a CBDC. Now, 114 is a massive number. Only 11 have fully launched that digital currency now. And again, the interesting thing is that there's no standardization of the way those CBDCs are being implemented. So the interoperability of those CBDCs is going to be really difficult. If someone in uh, China wants to send money to Jamaica via their CBDCs, you will need an intermediary or a number of intermediaries to do conversions. If we can find parity of how those CBDCs are implemented, then perhaps there's a real big play for them. Outside of CBDCs and somewhat similar are stable coins. So these are um, digital currencies that are pegged usually to the dollar um, one for one. And the, that pegging should mean that for every dollar of a stable coin, um, and we'll use dollars, there is a dollar somewhere in a vault of hard currency. I think in reality, what we've seen is some of that pegging has not been one for one. Um, it's never done completely in cash. It might be done in bonds and, and things like that. Um, but again, the, the the devil's in the detail. If you can get a really good stable coin that has a really robust peg and is managed well, um, that for me could be um, a different option for those cross-border payments because you're not relying on any central bank um, holding the, the keys to their kingdom in, in how that CBDC is um, implemented. And because you've got an autonomous organization, uh, they can manage better the interoperability of that. 11's actually still a really high amount considering how recent it is. Like I feel like I only heard about it within the last year and it's already at 11. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the stats around it in, in terms of golf, there's a really great uh, tracker, which I'll point people to. It's on the AtlanticCouncil.org forward slash CBDC tracker. And they're just keeping this really visual update of um, where various countries are in, in different uh, stages, developing their CBDCs and understanding the, the challenges around that. So that leads in quite well to our last question. Um, if people are interested in hearing more about you or about free market, how can they follow or connect with you? 
So yeah, for free market specifically, jump onto wearefreemarket.com. There's various ways that you can get in touch with us through that website. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we're really big on LinkedIn um, and you'll see us at various trade shows. Um, I think the next one is at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. Got a big, exciting stand there. There's some um, interesting things we're doing at that uh, show as well to raise money for charity. So do come and find us there. Um, and if you're interested in myself, reach out to me on, on LinkedIn or at matthew.jackson at wearefreemarket.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Matt. Thank you. This was the FS podcast hosted by Exadel. Don't forget to follow us to hear more.